0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number one, 2 Kings chapter one. The second book of Kings, again, as two books of Kings, the first book and the second book. And they were originally one book that recorded the history of Israel's monarchy from the last few days of King David's life through the civil war that split the unified kingdom of Israel into separate and independent kingdoms, a, a southern and a northern kingdom. And then the exile and the dispersion of the ten tribes that formed the northern king- that uh, formed the northern kingdom all to, all throughout the Asian con- continent, and then finally the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah to Babylon, but generally as a go- cohesive group and as we 've just completed the first book of kings, roughly halfway through the era when Israel was ruled by monarchs, we have been dealing with this complexity of trying to essentially intertwine the histories of two kingdoms, Judah with Ephraim Israel, as well as formulating a timeline that synchronizes the reigns of the kings of Judah with the reigns of the kings of the northern kingdom. To put a sharper point on it, David was anointed king of Judah about 1004 B.C., and soon thereafter king over all Israel. But upon the first words of the book of 2 Kings, we've arrived at about 850 B.C., and now the Hebrews have two different sets of kings ruling over this divided kingdom. The final words of the book of 2 Kings occurs about 560 BC with Judah in Babylon and the Hebrews having no king at all. So the book of 1 Kings covers approximately 150 years. The 2nd book of Kings will cover about 190 years. Now as a prelude to opening the book of 2 Kings, now is a good time to once again climb into our imaginary balloon and float up to a high altitude and get a panoramic view of matters so that we can move forward together in a comfortable and understandable context. And the first thing for us to grasp is that the author or editor of the Book of Kings has a central underlying viewpoint from which he presents his work. It is that the degree of loyalty that the various kings of Israel show to the God of Israel will determine the course of Israel's history. To be clear, the king's behavior mattered. But what mattered most for the fate of Israel was his faithfulness towards God. Thus, while King David's behavior was often self-serving and violent, even sinful, his steadfastness into holding on to, defending, worshiping Jehovah God of Israel and none other produced the golden age of a united, powerful, wealthy, sovereign kingdom of God that will not Literally will not be equaled or surpassed until the so called millennial kingdom when Messiah reigns in person in Jerusalem. On the other hand, David's son Solomon began to show tolerance for the worship of other gods to appease his hundreds of wives and his many foreign allies. And so while there were great accomplishments during his reign, Israel also began rotting just under the surface. Upon Shlomo's death, in a mere three years, a civil war ensued, and Israel's historical trajectory changed radically as it ceased to be a unified kingdom. And the resultant two kingdoms produced a litany of kings who disobeyed God, led their people into sin and apostasy, albeit to varying degrees and at differing paces. And therefore we see Israel's power and prosperity on this steady decline as a direct consequence of their declining loyalty to Jehovah their God. Now, most Christians would claim that while Israel's history is interesting and it's divinely transmitted down to us, it remains relevant only to the extent that it affects the Jewish people. And even at that, the more liberal side of Christianity and Judaism sees Israel's history as helping us to understand how Certain faith traditions and perhaps some doctrines were formed, but as having no actual effect on the present or the future of God's followers. Therefore, they reason, while the viewpoint of the author of the book of Kings is that Israel's historical outcome is based first and foremost on its loyal and faithful service to Yehovah. that's not to be taken as reality. Nor did the outcomes we read about in the book of kings the wars the exiles the the dispersions actually happen as a result of a breach in that loyalty but rather they were just caused by the natural ebb and flow of geopolitical issues and the empire building desires of powerful men so as a means to help us connect our study of second kings with earlier parts of the Bible and, the, and, and for me to demonstrate that contrary to liberal liberal scholarly consensus just how intimately related and indelibly linked Israel is to, uh, or, to or rather all linked together is Israel's conscious decision to embrace idolatry and sin with their fate Eventually being thrown out of their land inheritance and into the subjugation of the Gentile nations, I want to use the work of David Noel Friedman as a platform. In a new book produced by Walter C. Kaiser Jr., called "Recovering the Unity of the Bible," he calls upon Friedman's astute observation, That essentially, all the biblical books occurring after Mount Sinai and then leading up to 2 Kings records Israel's breaking of all of the Ten Commandments that are essentially the founding principles that forms the basis for Israel's existence as a kingdom of God and that it is this sequential breaking of every one of the commandments given to Moses that that gave God this legal standing to exercise such harsh justice upon his people. Now, in fact, I would argue that had the Lord not removed His chosen from the land in punishment for their transgressions. After centuries of reproofs and warnings and extended mercy, then He was not just. He was not a holy God. Rather, He would have been more like a modern-day parent who makes willy-nilly hollow threats towards His misbehaving children but seldom follows through so that the children learn to close their ears and ignore the warnings and fearlessly do what's right in their own eyes. Thus Friedman says that the principal goal up to now in the Bible has been to explain how it is, how it was, that God identified a people set apart for His own, delivered them from oppression in the land of Egypt, brought them to a designated homeland in Canaan, and in time ejected them from that homeland to be scattered and dispersed among the nations. At the center of this progression was the Ten Commandments, Israel's constitution, a covenant-based agreement between God and Israel that set down the terms of their existence as a kingdom of God. The agreement established blessings for obedience to those terms and consequences that are more technically called curses for violation. The adherence to this covenant of Moses was deemed by Jehovah as being of such great importance that it was given to Israel twice. The first time was to the first generation of the Exodus almost immediately upon leaving Egypt, and the second time was to the second generation of the Exodus, those that were born during the 40 years in the wilderness. And that was given from the mountains of Moab as their entry into the promised land was imminent. Friedman claims that beginning in the book of Exodus, Each Bible book that follows centers upon the violation of one specific commandment among the Ten Commandments. In fact, he goes so far as to declare that uh, that they are virtually violated in the order they were given to Moses and recorded on those two stone tablets. Perhaps. The problem I have with that claim is that there's a variety of ways used to number The commandments, and he chooses the one that he says is the consensus view of most scholars. Nonetheless, his premise that Israel's wanton transgression against these Ten Commandments is quite visible, and that these transgressions are sequential, progressive, identifiable, and it provides us with the reason for the Lord's judgment of exile against his chosen people, and I think this is valid, valid, and I think it's a brilliant observation. So let's take a few minutes to just kind of follow this progression. Now let me be clear that while on the surface this may seem like some kind of esoteric, technical, theological theory that only academics could love, it's not difficult. <coughs> In fact, this really, in my opinion, ought to become as fundamental a teaching for all serious Bible students and worshipers of the God of Israel as the evangelical Roman's road that explains the pathway to salvation. And that is because the following of Israel's history in light of of their eventual trespasses against all ten of God's commandments is going to help us grab hold of God's true nature and of his promised plan. Now Friedman says the first breaking of God's commandments was when Aaron made the infamous golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai at the very moment the commandments were being given to Moses at the summit of that same mountain. In one fell swoop, the first two commandments were violated. First, you shall have no other gods before me, and second, you shall not make for yourself a graven image, an idol, in the form of anything. Thus the two sins of apostasy and idolatry occurred at one time, and this tragic event set the tone for what would be a further disobedience only a few months later that meant that Israel would wander in the desert wilderness for 40 years as the first generation of the Exodus died off because of their rebelliousness against the Lord. Israel's third trespass was blasphemy. It can be identified in Leviticus 24 when a man who had an Egyptian father but a Hebrew mother got into a fight with another Israelite man and during that fight he blasphemed God's name. He was arrested, eventually hauled outside of the camp of Israel and he was executed for this sin. The fourth trespass concerned Shabbat, the Sabbath. This happens in Numbers 15 where we hear about a man who has gathered wooden sticks on Shabbat in order to kindle a fire. Now the Hebrew sages point out that it was neither an emergency nor any kind of necessity that this man built a fire, but rather it was an in-your-face kind of defiance. And It's a fascinating reality that the two most difficult commandments to remain obedient to for the Israelites seemed to be refraining from idolatry and committing to observe the Sabbath without fail. Both of these commandments were direct human-to-God offenses, as opposed to -to human-to-human offenses such as stealing or murder. I think it is fascinating and and further validates the value of noticing the never-ending, never-changing God patterns that emerge in the Bible that in our modern times it remains the twin issues of idolatry and refusal to observe Sabbath that weakens and defiles the church. And just like In the ancient times, when the Hebrews denied that they were trespassing against these commandments, so do we current era Christians deny that we commit idolatry as we seek to redefine God in our own image. Or that we have any obligation to observe Sabbath. You know, we're rather schizophrenic on the issue. On the one hand, we proudly post the Ten Commandments in our homes, in our sanctuaries, and on the other hand, we deny we have actu- any actual duty to obey them. Go figure that one out. The prophets of old regularly spoke out regarding the lack of proper Shabbat observance and the consequences that would come from this lack of regard. And it happened. The fifth trespass concerned honoring one's parents. The incident given in the Bible where this command was violated is in Deuteronomy 21. And it concerned a son who was disrespectful of his father. He was a no-account who shamed his family. He refused to acknowledge parental authority and would not accept any kind of discipline. I believe that while real this was also a metaphor of Israel as a whole. That is, Israel behaved as a son who was disrespectful of their father, Yehovah, who brought shame on the holy name of God, who refused to accept the Lord's authority on their lives, and generally they didn't respond to divine discipline that was designed to correct their bad behavior. Their son, was removed from the camp of Israel, the land of Israel, and stoned to death. The next violation was of the commandment not to steal, and it is dealt with in Joshua chapter 7. It concerns a fellow named Achan, and it occurred at the time that Israel attacked and decimated Jericho. It seems that Achan took some of the spoils of war for himself. Now normally, the sin of stealing is a human-on-human misbehavior. However, in this particular instance, the property that was stolen was God's private property. And so the sin was especially egregious. The law of harem, the law of the ban, was in effect. And this meant... That when Israel was led by God in holy war, as they were against the stronghold of Jericho, then upon victory, the, the, the usual spoils of war that might go to the victorious soldiers instead went to God. Often in the form of the spoils being destroyed by fire that in some loose way mimicked a sacrificial altar fire. So Achan effectively stole God's holy property and the result was his death. The breaking of a seventh commandment occurs in Judges 19-21 through 21, and it regards the sin of murder. This is the story of a Levite man and his concubine who traveled to a city in the territory of Benjamin. She was gang-raped She was abused to the point of death and then left to die on the porch of the home where her Levite husband was cowering inside hiding from these thugs. But the appalling nature of the event doesn't end there. The widower proceeds to cut up her corpse, thus defiling it by denying her a proper burial and sends pieces of her to the other tribes as a message asking them to come and severely punish these Benjamites who did this hateful thing. The end result was a war of all the other Israelite tribes against the tribe of Benjamin that came perilously close to making Benjamin extinct. In the book of 1 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 the crime of adultery The eighth in the series of violation of the Ten Commandments is perpetrated. It involved King David's sexual desire for Bathsheba, the beautiful young wife of his loyal military officer, Uriah. As Walter C. Kaiser Jr. points out, this was a turning point in the history of Israel just as it was for King David's personal life. From here on, David's line digressed and it was a constant source of trouble. And of course, in a short time, David's son Solomon would take the throne, allow idols and pagan worship to go on openly in the land, and then shortly after his death, the unified kingdom of Israel disintegrated. And finally, at the end of the book we've only recently concluded, 1 Kings the 9th and the 10th commandments are violated in but a single event. The unbelievably wicked King Ahav and his foreign wife Jezebel decide to steal the land belonging to a common citizen of Israel, a man named Navot. The two commandments that were broken were the prohibition against coveting and the prohibition against bearing false witness in a court of law. In this incident, Navot is, the un, is in the unfortunate position of owning a lovely vineyard adjacent to the country palace of the king and queen of Israel. The king decides he'd like to have it for his own personal garden. But when Navot refuses to sell it to the king, because it's against the Torah law, for a person to sell their ancestral tribal land holding, then his fate is sealed. The king covets this, land, this man's land so much that he goes into a deep depression. His wife Jezebel, fearing that the king's countenance will reflect badly on the monarchy, leaps into action. She organizes a kangaroo court, devises a false accusation of blasphemy, against Nevot, and he is subsequently stoned to death by the liars she has hired. Immediately King Ahav claims the deceased Naboth's land as his own. The cycle of all the Ten Commandments being broken by God's people is now complete as we get ready to open the book of 2nd Kings. Nothing is left except for God to finally bring the just curse of righteous judgment upon his people and that's what we're going to be seeing happening in the ensuing chapters. So, with that, open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 400. After Ahav's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. When Ahaziah fell through a latticed window of his upper room in Shomron, Samaria, and he lay injured, he sent messengers and said to them, Go consult Baal Zavuv, the god of Ekron, and ask whether I will recover from this injury. But an angel of Adonai said to Elial, Elijah, from Tishbe, Get up! Intercept the messengers of the king of Shomron and ask them is it because there's no God in Israel that you're on your way to consult Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron?" And then Adonai says you will never leave the bed you're lying on, you will certainly die. Then Elijah left. The messengers returned to Ahaziah and he asked them, why have you come back? and they answered it well a man came to meet us and he told us to go and return to the king who sent us and tell him here is what Adonai says is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to consult Beelzebub the God of Echron therefore you will never leave the bed you are lying on you will certainly die well he asked of them well the man who came to meet you and told you these things what kind of man was he he was a hairy man they answered him with a leather belt around his waist. He said, it was Elijah from Tishbe. Then the king sent a commander of 50 to Elijah, together with his 50 men. And Elijah was sitting on top of a hill, and the commander climbed up to him and said, man of God, the king says, come down. Elial answered the commander of 50, if in fact I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and burn you up along with your 50 men. Fire came down from heaven and it burned up him and his 50 men. The king sent another commander of 50 together with his 50 men and he said to him, Man of God! The king says, Come down immediately. And Eliyahu answered him, If I am in fact a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and burn you up along with your 50 men. Fire came down from heaven and it burned up him and his 50 men. The king sent a third commander of 50 with his 50 men. And the third commander of 50 climbed up, approached Eliel, and fell on his knees before him. And he pleaded with him, Man of God, please, have some regard for my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours. I know that fire came down from heaven and burned up the two other commanders with their 50 men, but but now have some regard for my life. The angel of Adonai said to Eliel, Go down with him. Don't be afraid of him. So he got up and went down with him to the king. And Elijah said to the king, Here is what Adonai says. You sent messengers to consult baal Sabub, the god of Ekron. Is it because there is no god in Israel you can consult? Therefore you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died. In keeping with the word of Adonai spoken through Elijah. Jehoram began to, began to rule in place of him during the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because he had no son. Other activities of Ahaziah are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. It's kind of a mystery to me why the editor of the book of Kings decided that this was the best point to separate 1st and 2nd Kings. It, it seems as though the context has been cut in half. I would think it would have been more appropriate if it had, been, if it had included the last few verses of 1st Kings 22 so that the opening of 2nd Kings would have read something like this. Achaziah the son of Ahab began his reign over Israel in Shomron in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat king of Judah and he ruled two years over Israel he did what was evil from Adonai's perspective living in the manner of his father his mother and Jeroboam the son of Nevat by, uh, by which he led Israel into sin he also served Baal and worshipped him and he made Adonai the, the god of Israel angry in keeping with everything his father had done and after Ahab's death Moab rebelled against Israel That's the context. That's the way we need to see it. But the important point that's being made is that a critical event happened immediately upon Ahav's death. Moab rebelled against Israel. Moab had been under Israel's control as a vassal state since the time of King David, some 150 years. But apparently Ahaziah was a rather weak king. And when he took over from his father, the ruler of Moab found the perfect moment to try to regain independence. In fact, the ancient Hebrew sages say that Ahaziah was a sickly man and simply didn't have the strength to rule. Losing Moab was a severe blow to Israel, but it was also indicative of this downward spiral that Israel was in. God's hand of blessing had been retracted due to Israel having violated all the Ten Commandments. And without this blessing, all manner of unexpected consequences, curses, was now going to take place. Verse 2 tells us that Ahav's son... Ahaziah accidentally fell from the second floor of his abode and was left in critical condition. He would soon die of his injuries. We are told in 1 Kings 21 that after Jezebel arranged for Navot to be falsely accused of blasphemy and then wrongly executed all due to her husband's coveting of Navot's land, that Elijah Elijah showed up to tell the king that his family would be annihilated as a consequence of these violating two, if not three, of the Ten Commandments, coveting, false witness, and murder. And yet, because Ahab showed some degree of remorse and repentance, although pretty shallow, it seems, the Lord allowed some of this penalty to be moved to the following generation of Ahab's family. Well, now the time has come and Ahaziah will bear the penalty originally intended for his father. Lest we feel sorry, though, for Ahaziah, we only have to read a few more words of this account of his injury and death as he does what was quite customary for that era he sends some messengers to a god to find out what the outcome of his injuries might be. Now the idea is of divination of the future. However, in a display of his thoroughly corrupted nature, we find Ahaziah did not seek the God of Israel, but rather sought the guidance of Baal Zebub, the Lord of the Flies. Zevuv was the fly god, whose likeness indeed was that of a fly. And this was a god who was honored in the northernmost of the five cities of the Philistines Ekron. For future reference, it would help us to know that the term Baal was the Canaanite and Phoenician name of their chief god, but it was also a term that meant Lord so we can find a number of different gods called Baal such and such. The same name is pronounced in Aramaean as Bel or Ba'el and the Babylonian Assyrian languages say Bel and it works the same way. Most Bibles are going to use all three of these names and it's often confused as meaning three different gods. That's not the case. The kings of Israel had moved rather rapidly since the division of the kingdom from adding a few idols to their worship of Jehovah to creating a golden calf that was meant to represent Jehovah to a syncretism that rolled the worship of a number of gods of which Jehovah was but one into a kind of one-size-fits-all religion. But then finally, we see Yehovah utterly renounced. And it is never so blatant as we read here with Ahaziah as he shuns seeking God for word on his injured condition and instead seeks the Philistine god, Baal Zebu, for answers. One must understand that this outright rejection of Yehovah by Ahaz was not only personal, but it was also national, because he was the supreme leader who represented, who represented all Israel before God. And we have studied in the past how well the Bible reveals that a nation is dependent. Upon its leader's status before God as the determiner of that nation's fate. What we see regarding King Ahaziah and his nation of Israel is very much like we see happening in many parts of the Western world today, including America, as the biblical pattern repeats. In 2009, while visiting the Muslim nation of Turkey, President Obama boldly stated that America is no longer a Christian nation, but rather we are secular. In simple terms, this means we, are here, we hereby officially reject God as our spiritual national leader and as the ultimate lawgiver who has set down our moral and ethical principles in the Ten Commandments. And instead, we now look to our own human intellect, to the goodness of of humanity, to fashion our own lives, our own values, to establish our own path, and we accept no power higher than ourselves that we must answer to. This follows on the heels of his predecessor, President George Bush, who told all the world as he stood in a mosque following 9-11 that the God of Israel, the Christian God, and Allah, God of the Muslims, are the same God. This is the epitome of syncretism, and we've seen all this before in the history of Israel. Our current president's statement regarding his intent to lead our country in a purely secular fashion is nothing less than the official renunciation of God as the true leader of our nation. While few even took notice of it, this was a historical turning point. A downward turn in our nation. And I have little doubt that this was the president's intention. However, just as Akhaziah thought that he would achieve better results for himself and for his nation by turning his back on Yehovah and adopting other gods, but instead the results were catastrophic, why would we think that the outcome of America's chosen leader turning his back on God and leading his nation that way would be any better. In verse 3, the Lord decides to intervene and he speaks to Elijah and he tells him to go and intercept these messengers sent by Ahaziah to divine if he's going to live or not. And to give these messengers a message from Yehovah. Now interestingly, we once again encounter this angel of the Lord, this mysterious manifestation of God. And as we have learned, a proper interpretation of the Hebrew renders this name the angel of Yehovah, Malach Yehovah, Yudhevavhe. Briefly, this is God. It's not an angel of some sort that's a lesser spiritual creature who's God's servant. This is precisely the same term used in the Torah to describe God's manifestation in the burning bush. So it is God himself who speaks to Elijah and says to take this oracle not to the king, but to the messengers of the king. And the message consists of two parts. First, a rhetorical or maybe even sarcastic question that asks if the king and his messengers are going to bail Zebu because they think Israel has no God of its own. And second, because of the king's renunciation of Jehovah, the king will not recover from his fall and he shall die. The messengers knew that they must immediately report this to their king. So they broke off their journey to Ekron. They told their king what this prophet had told them. Interestingly, the king's response was to ask them what this prophet looked like. They said he was a hairy man who wore a leather belt. Instantly, Ahaziah knew who this was. It was Elijah. After all, Elijah was an old family nemesis who, according to Achaziah's father, never had anything even remotely resembling good news or blessing for him. So Achaziah reacted exactly as his father had. He became furious. He wanted this prophet of doom and trouble brought to him immediately. Now remember... The ancient superstition was that a prophet could decide for himself what was to be and then get the gods to make it happen. So Achaziah fully intended on forcing Elijah to retract his prophecy of the king's death so it wouldn't happen. And by the way, saying that Elijah was hairy didn't mean that he was matted with extreme body hair. Rather it means he was wearing hairy clothing like of camel's hide. See, this kind of clothing was sort of a, a recognized uniform for prophets of God. It was as uncomfortable as it was odd. But we see this custom continued on for centuries as the New Testament's famous John the Baptist also wore hairy clothes that made his vocation quite apparent to one and all. Next week we'll finish up chapter 1, then move on into chapter 2 for one of the strangest and most befuddling happenings in the entire Bible, the translation of Elijah into the heavens in the presence of Elisha.